Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got my Bible open to Psalm 27. I love this verse. Um, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I feel very encouraged by that. I think there's so much bad news out there, and there's so much conflict and tension. I love the fact that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We've got a great show. Kim Cattola is going to be joining me in just about a minute. And then also Dr. Paul Kengor is going to be with me in the second part of the hour. And I am looking forward to catching up with uh, my friend Kim Cattola. She is not only a broadcaster, but a writer, a speaker, and she is a uh, serves as a pro-life advocate. She's the author of Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. Kim, nice to have you back on the show. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? Uh, loving the Indian summer. <laughs> it is pretty nice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm liking that too. All right, lots of stuff in the in the pro-life news, and I would love to hear um, your take on some of this uh, COVID treatment protocol that has gotten quite a bit of uh, press on the pro-abortion side. Well, and it, it's uh, before we go there, Bill. I loved your uh, quote from Psalm 27. Yeah. Because, you know, Psalm 27 (laughs) is uh, a really, it's just an important pro-life psalm. Um, Seeing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living means that, what, we we don't have to wait for heaven. Right. We, We understand that we can be confident that God will show his goodness, as you said, Bill, in the midst of whatever troubling circumstances we find ourselves in. And, you know, when when David wrote this psalm, he was saying, the Lord is my light, and, you know, pleading with the Lord, don't, don't hide your light, don't hide your face from me. Um, but when he says, you know, though my father, it's it, it, in verse 10, it reads, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Mm-hmm. And that was a really important verse to me when I was recovering from the personal devastation of abortion, because uh, indeed I had forsaken my own child Mm -hmm. by participating in that abortion. But knowing here that it says in God's word, the Lord receives those even rejected and forsaken by mother and father. And so, you know, I think that that's such an encouragement for those of us impacted by abortion, but such a caution for anybody advocating for abortion, that you're really going against what, whom the Lord has created and whom the Lord will defend. And we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, verse 14 says, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So thank you for that. You blessed me with that verse today. It's almost, it's almost like we planned that. <laughs> 
So that's one of my, that one's on my, uh, you know, my Mount Rushmore. It's on my scroll. I don't know. It's oh, that's in, fantastic. engraved in my heart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love verse 13, um, and I hadn't really focused on verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. I, I can understand how that could be a, a beautiful message uh, for people that have suffered uh, through the loss of a child through abortion. Yeah, and you know, I there's so many layers to the recovery and to the healing. I mean, I believe that you know I was redeemed immediately as soon as I received the gift of repentance, mm-hmm. which was now oh gosh, almost 20 years ago. Thank you, Lord. Um, but still, new, as new things occur, God is showing me even more the magnitude of the healing. And I was very recent, maybe a year ago, I was listening to Aaron Neville sing Jesus Loves Me. Oh, everybody needs to hear it if you've never heard his version. (laughs) And realizing that abortion is always driven by a lack of love for that child. And we can talk about politics and we can talk about the spiritual battle and everything in between. But at, at its heart, abortion represents a lack of love. And it's so blessed me to realize that um, Jesus loved my child that day. Mm-hmm. It's so blessed me to realize that, that my child did not die alone, even though I was one of the ones to abandon um, his little life that day. And so, yeah, it's um, it, thank you for letting me share that, because I, I don't think that you know, it took me a long time. I mean, I've, I've been in my healing almost 20 years, as I said, when I realized that, mm-hmm. oh, Jesus loves these children, and his love doesn't change, despite what we do. You're killing me, Kim. It's so, it's so <laughs> tender. What you God just said is so, is so tender. God is so good. Yeah. You're going to have to talk now, because I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm just a little messed up right now. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, thank you for letting me share that. I don't know who needed to hear it today, yeah. but abortion breaks hearts and it hardens hearts. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you know, thinking of God's love for the children will break through someone's hardness of heart, too, as far as yeah. that goes. I think when you said that Jesus loved my baby that day, I think that's what, I think that's what got to me. Hmm. Amen. Yeah, sorry I'm not more useful right now. It's all good. God is very, very good. I wasn't planning to talk about that today, but well, like, that's, I, that's good. I'm the glad word you did. Does its work. Yeah, but you God's know, verse fourteen says, "Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord." I think that message is always so real for so many people, uh, and it doesn't have to be involving an abortion. It can be anything. Yeah, and you know, waiting. I, one of the big lessons for me spiritually. In my walk with the Lord, Bill, is that waiting is a something. It's not a nothing. <laughs> waiting is a something. You know, you think about tapping your foot at a doctor's office or something. I'm waiting. I'm not doing anything, right. you know? No, waiting for the Lord is a something. And what is it? It's a chance for our strength to rise. Mm-hmm. It's a chance to take heart in the Lord, you know, as we wait. Yeah. So. Yeah. Kim, if you don't mind, I'm going to take an early break and I'll just get myself reset and we'll be back. Uh, is that all right? Okay. <laughs> okay, go. All right. Kim Cattell is my guest. We'll be back in 90 seconds.
I am back with Kim Katola, a real radio professional that doesn't collapse on air like other people I know. Um, Kim, I was just curious about your understanding of what went on with uh, the treatment, uh, COVID treatment protocol. I know the uh, there has been some that have said that there was uh, a human life was involved. Well, you know, I every once in a while um, and often really I try to tune in to a broad spectrum of voices and perspectives in media and um, was listening the morning after President Trump had announced that he had been treated successfully for COVID-19. And this was from people I was listening to a broadcast outlet and they clearly uh, were not on the president's side. They were referring to his Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, as Amy Coney Island. And Mm -hmm. that gives you an idea of the level of discourse. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) one of the hosts said, how dare he? Um, He has denied people uh, fetal stem cell research for life-saving cures uh, through his administration, but then he took remdesivir. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know anything about it, so I did a little bit of research on it. And, yeah, they're very concerned, even though, of course, they don't have any ethical problem themselves with using fetal stem cells, okay? But they, I guess, were trying to call him out for hypocrisy. Um, And remdesivir is... A vaccine or a treatment, not a vaccine, but a treatment that's, that was developed using existing fetal stem cells. As I understand it, uh, these cells were harvested from a, a child who uh, was electively aborted in the 1970s, I believe, in the Netherlands. And so, it, it, in fact, this was not in violation of the Trump administration policy because the policy called for no new fetal stem cell lines for federal research as of 2019. So fetal stem cells that have been in existence for over 40 years have been, no pun intended, grandfathered in. And um, bioethicists who are Catholic and others have said, um, you know, this is not, they've said that it's morally permissible uh, because it can save the lives of children, for example, when used in vaccines. Um, it does not prohibit the Vatican for Catholics does not prohibit the use of vaccines developed using cell lines of illicit origin, in other words, from elective abortions, if children's health is at stake. And so, um, but they also went on to say everyone has the duty to inform healthcare providers of personal objections to developing vaccines from fetal stem cells that are being harvested today for that purpose. And so, um, you know, the, and as the bottom line for Catholics is that the bishops have said it's a matter of moral conscience. Some very strongly pro-life Catholics have objected to that, saying, look, you haven't taught us well enough so that we'd have a fully developed conscience on this. And so you're, you know, leading people in their ignorance to be complicit with murder if you're a very staunch pro-life Catholic, that might be your view. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that there's no violation of the Trump administration rules on the use of fetal stem cells. And again, you know, that there are two different stem cell lines that have been in use, Bill, uh, one from the 1950s and this other one from the 1970s. So I think that's where the controversy 
uh, comes from. And, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to ask those hosts who are, you know, mocking President Trump, oh, okay, well, then are you in favor of ending fetal stem cell research? Sounds like that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And, of course, of course they're not. Right. So, so where is the real hypocrisy? Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Kim. I think it's um, uh, there's so much misinformation, of course, and there's, um, I don't know, what media source to trust nowadays. It is really, that is the challenge of our time, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, for general news I, or political news, I think The Hill does at least a pretty good job of presenting both sides of an issue. I tend to read The Hill. But, you know, I, I, read, I read the mainstream press. I don't watch a lot of the mainstream broadcast because um, there's very little of it that's even reporting. It's mm-hmm. all opinion. You know, and I don't think the world really needs uh, more opinion, not based in truth or reality or facts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's a breeding ground for misinformation. Um, I, I like uh, the Washington Examiner. I like the Epoch Times. I think that these tend to present a fairly balanced view. Um, used to be that the Atlantic before, you know, recent stories, uh, the Atlantic would present something, would have a very strong uh, liberal or left-leaning slant, but they also, you know, publish conservative voices as well. But I think they've lost a lot of credibility in recent weeks. So it is. That's one of the biggest challenges, Bill, is how to be Mm well-informed. Kim, are more uh, women pursuing a healing uh, experience, a healing ministry as a result of uh, an abortion? You know, there are a lot of barriers to pursuing that healing bill. And I think that um, New Life Family Services in the Twin Cities has a group called Conquerors, which is where I went for the healing ministry after the Holy Spirit ministered to me directly. Mm. Um, and they presented a luncheon with alumni, or for alumni, that is, of, uh, of their Conquerors program, which has been Oh, gosh, I think they've been around for 25, 30 years, quite a long while. And, um, you know, about 100 women showed up when hundreds and hundreds of women have been through their recovery groups. Um, Some of these women have still not disclosed the abortion, although they've received their healing, you know, or or not disclosed it to family or to the people the very closest to them. So they choose not to be public about their Mm -hmm. healing. But what we learned at one of those events is that almost all of us had to have someone share a healing story so that we could say, I had an abortion too, or share that they had an abortion, that they'd been impacted by it, so that they made it safe for someone to disclose that abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The stigma is very, very strong for anybody to be able to pursue it, Bill. But, you know, there is help available. And I'm really encouraged by the group support after abortion. Uh, they're doing a fabulous job online of connecting women. They they actually put together a national database in response to a request, I think, from the team for the Unplanned movie. They said, you know, this may open the floodgates of women needing, wanting to pursue help. And there's not a national database 
Uh, and so Support After Abortion put that together, and they're very responsive. If you send a text or contact them through their website, they will get back to you within 24, 48 hours and find you the local help that you need. And if there's not a local group within 50 miles, I think they will connect you with a one-on-one mentor online. So the help is out there. Don't don't be you know discouraged and don't be dismayed. Take heart. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the help is out there. There are people who are, you know, willing to offer you God's love and your redemption today. Um, Kim, when you went through it, were you under pressure to make a decision quickly? Uh, The abortion? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there there weren't a lot of medical abortions. It was all surgical abortions. Okay. So if you want a medical abortion, I think that's where the time pressure really comes in these days because you can't take those pills after 10 weeks gestation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is some, yes, there's still, still some time pressure on surgical abortions as well because really they're not recommended at all after 16 weeks, and 12 to 16 weeks is very iffy. So I think I was probably, you know, they confirmed the pregnancy at 11 weeks and went for the abortion at 12 weeks. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I was rushed into that decision. I would say that um, I was abandoned to that decision. You know, the people who sold me the abortion, and it is absolutely a for sale, I mean, a for-profit business bill. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who sold me that abortion uh, did not counsel me. They did not tell me anything about fetal development or embryology. They showed me no images of what my baby looked like at 12 weeks gestation. Mm-hmm. They said it wasn't a baby in answer to my one question, is it a baby? Well, I also asked them, will it hurt? And they said no. Um, so they said, no, it's just tissue. So, yeah, I mean, they it operates in the dark. It operates in a vacuum of knowledge. It operates um, in, uh, uh, I guess, a, I, I think a predatory and coercive environment in that way, sort of the passive predation of it, right, by not tell, giving people all the information they need, mm-hmm. uh, by, not, by not telling women, you know, that this is a child, by not uh, telling them about, no one told me about any alternatives. Uh, you know, the, the pregnancy health movement wasn't strong in the late 1970s, as far as I know, but there was help. There are always alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much a rush as it was just a vacuum of any other alternative than what they were trying to sell me, the abortion business. And they probably don't want you to see ultrasound. Uh, they don't want probably anything that might cause you to bond with your baby. They've fought very heavily against ultrasound laws. The abortion industry has. Yes, I agree. They do not want you to see that. They do not want you to know. Mm-hmm. Um, because once you start bonding, of course, it's going to be a game changer. Um, and I'm just curious about some of the, the feelings that uh, a woman would have when they are torn about their decision and they try to go on with their lives, but... They have difficulty trying to uh, conf- um, get through the nature of the grief because how do you just go out and talk about this? Right. And, you know, so I've just become familiar with the concept, and I, I probably shouldn't speak about it since I'm not very well versed. But I think just the idea is very helpful when we think about abortion grief, Bill. Uh, the idea of moral injury. Mm-hmm. So you, by some problem in your character, have injured yourself or someone else. Uh, you have you have 
you know, injured someone else through your lack of morals or lack of exercising your morals. And so how do you re- how do you recover from your own character flaw, if you will? And, and it can be done. It, it happens after combat veterans have to come to terms with things that they've done in combat. You know, and it ha- and and it's being applied in some circles for abortion recovery, and I think this is what has to happen. You have to be, you have to have a restoration with the Lord because it's a spiritual crisis. Because our hearts know that another life was involved, whether mm-hmm. or not we, you know, whether or not we acknowledge it intellectually, and whether or not anybody else affirms that to us, our hearts know it. And so we have to come to terms with God because we've participated in the taking of an innocent life. And then we also have to be restored with people because we want to keep this a secret. We don't want people to know we've had a moral failing that grave, right? Mm-hmm. But we also have to be restored to ourselves because it changes your self-concept. You know, and particularly, you may not know how badly it has changed your self-concept until you decide to parent a child after that abortion, you know, because you may become either very, very overprotective so that you never harm this child, or you may become very aloof to never even give yourself the chance to love this child. So you just stay far enough away so that you won't harm them. But it definitely can have, you know, the ripple effect into your parenting in that way. A lot of times women don't even really understand that until they're in a recovery process, how much it has affected their relationship with themselves in ways that are being borne out in their relationships with their children and others. So, yeah, there's, it's a comprehensive uh, life-altering uh, decision that needs to be addressed in all these different areas of your life in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. And how is uh, being a grandma? <laughs> You know, I think right now I'm telling somebody I'm in, I, I am now engaged in the Ministry of Availability. <laughs> well, tell me what that means. Well, I mean, it's like yes, I can take them to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I certainly can pick them up after that flu shot. Okay, yes, I'm available to cook dinner Thursday night. You know, so it's wonderful. I'm enjoying it very much. We have um, we have grandbabies in Boston and Chicago and Portland, Oregon whom I don't see as often. So FaceTime's a wonderful thing. <laughs> you yeah, know, uh, remote, remote grandparenting is happening too. But yeah, yeah, I love this season of life very yeah. much. And I never imagined that as a young woman pursuing my career as uh, ambitiously as I did, that I could be so satisfied with the role of grandmothering and nurturing and not having any kind of a public life, if you will, Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's a very different rhythm. And it's a very different um, reward. And I guess, you know, my whole big challenge now is managing the, the downtime. <laughs> it's been yeah. way too much time on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kim, thank you so much for saying yes to coming on the show today. It's always nice to talk to you. And I always uh, feel very encouraged uh, with uh, you and what you have to, to say. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And Bill, you know, we didn't talk about Amy Coney Barrett, but pray for her confirmation. Yeah, we're doing that in the next half hour. And yeah, because she's a good hope for us. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Kim Cattola has been my guest. We'll take a little break and be back with Dr. Paul Kangor.
Welcome back to the show. Always glad to have Dr. Paul Kangor on the program. One of my faves. He's a professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and senior academic fellow at the Center for Vision and Values. And Paul is an author of over a dozen books, including A Pope and a President, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and The Extraordinary Untold Story of the 20th Century, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Communism, and Dupes, How America's Adversaries Have Manipulated Progressives for a Century. Paul, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you again. It is always nice to talk to you. I learn a lot all the time. But I would like to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Amy Coney Barrett and um, a really a great article that you wrote in The American Spectator. Yeah, thank you. It's, yeah, I, and I start that piece by noting a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it's a piece called Amy versus the Anti-Birthers. <laughs> and this is a quote, Bill, that I wish everybody knew. It's about, shocking. Um, I had to RPG. read it twice to make sure I was reading it right. Yep, yep. She said, frankly, I had thought that at the time that Roe, Roe v. Wade, was decided, there was concern about population growth, and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of, so that Roe was going to be then set up for Medicaid funding for abortion. And you know, she, she told that to the New York Times Magazine, July 7, 2009, a piece called The Place of Women on the Court. And the reporter at that point, Bill, should have said, well, uh, Judge, can you tell us who these populations are that you don't want to have too many of? No but kidding. they didn't. Yeah, they didn't, because this is uh, RBG. She's a progressive. She's a liberal, and they support her. But I'll tell you what, if Donald Trump last week would have stood up there on stage with Joe Biden and said, uh, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I supported abortion in the past is to get rid of these populations that we don't want to have too many of, mm-hmm. right? That would be uh, be pretty much it. But <laughs> yeah, with uh, RBG, I mean, they're ready to chisel her onto Mount Rushmore. Yeah, they really so are. They will, uh, yeah, they'll look past all that stuff. Yeah. So now we look at Amy Coney Barrett, and she's a mother of seven. She's got a Down syndrome child. And two adopted children from Haiti. Apparently, they were abandoned sort of after uh, the the disaster in Haiti. That's right. Yeah. And 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 look, that's it's the kind of thing that you know. I've I've heard this. You probably have too for decades from from pro-choicers, secular people, and they'll say, um, "Oh, you pro-life people, you you only care about the baby when it's in the womb, right? You you don't want to do anything for the baby after the baby's been born." Which which is just it, it's just an ad hominem. It's just a nasty attack. It comes from people who probably don't know people of faith. And I mean, I'd love to see hard data sometime, Bill, on the religious beliefs of Americans who adopt, especially from overseas and. Uh, you know, I, I, it's got to be, you know, kind of faithful evangelicals and you know Roman Catholics who are probably leading in that charge. Uh, my own family, I have eight, eight oh, children. Wow. And, you have eight kids? Yeah, I have eight kids. Okay, and, and yeah, two two are adopted. Um, one, like Amy Coney Barrett's uh, two adopted children, is um, is is black. 
And, you know, it's and, and I my wife and I for years have supported pro-life ministries. And in fact, the, the one nearest to us, which which we do work for volunteer work, which we give money to, which we've you know, I've spoken at their banquets, all sorts of things. Bill, they're just loaded with 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 ministries for taking care of of, of the child and helping the mom after the birth. Mm-hmm. That's what they're all about. It's 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 what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 you know, somebody like an Amy Coney Barrett. You know, you know, we all look at things like disasters in Haiti and say, "Boy, that's tough, man. That's that's a bad thing." Oh well, those poor people. Oh well, and then, and then you know, we don't really do much. Much else. Here's somebody who actually saved a couple kids who right. didn't have parents. And you know, of all things, like I like I quote in this article, we we got people calling her a, a white colonizer. <laughs> and, the, and and if someone's thinking, well, you could probably find someone on the internet who will say anything. Well, that's actually a Boston University professor. Um, uh, Ibram Kendi, who said that some white colonizers adopted black children. They civilized these savage children in their superior ways of white people hmm. while using them as props wow. in their lifelong pictures of denial while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. And by the way, he did a book, Bill, of course, called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Hmm. <laughs> and, and yet here's somebody who's really fanning and fomenting racial division. Um, you know, my youngest son, who's who's black, I don't look at him as black. <laughs> he doesn't look at me as like his white dad. Right. You know, we, it's, everything's fine. We, we, it, it, it's okay. But 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 these are the people who really do want to identify everybody by their skin color. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the complete opposite of, of what of what of what they really claim or once claimed they wanted to do. For them, it's all identity politics, and and you know, first and foremost, the alpha and the omega is you know what skin color you are. Mm-hmm. I, I I had I had thought that we were beyond this stuff, um, but but now it seems to be what what you know what drives everything. It's quite sad. Mm-hmm. Just give my listeners a little bit of a refresher course on uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder oh, of Planned yeah. Parenthood. Yeah, I go through that in this article because yes, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said about populations we don't want to have too many of, well, that's exactly what the founder of Planned Parenthood was all about. And you know, she talked about race improvement, getting rid, purging the population of its morons, idiots, imbeciles, human weeds. The, the the dead weight of human waste, wow. and she said, uh, "Yeah, wow. she said the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective." And and in Margaret Sanger's main book, I won't even talk about her 1926 May 1926 speech to the KKK, the women's branch of the KKK in Silver Lake, New Jersey, but in her 1922 book, The Pivot of Civilization. She wrote, every feeble-minded girl or woman of the hereditary type, especially of the moron class, you imagine that, Bill? The moron class Mm -hmm. should be segregated during the reproductive period. Otherwise, she is almost certain to bear imbecile children. 
who in turn are just as certain to breed other defectives. And so, so Margaret Sanger then wanted segregation. She said, quote, segregation carried out for one or two generations would give us only partial control of the problem. And, th and thus, Bill, she wanted sterilization as well. She said, quote, we prefer the policy of immediate sterilization, of making sure that parenthood is absolutely prohibited to the feeble-minded. And she wanted public funds to be made available by the hundreds of millions of dollars, bear in mind that's in the early 1920s, to the care and segregation of men, women, and children who never should have been born. So in other words, these are the populations that we don't want to have too many of. And, and you know, you know, that, that is the racial eugenics mindset and attitude of people like Margaret Sanger. And when Ruth Bader Ginsburg is saying, you know, I thought when we did Roe v. Wade, it was because of these populations we don't want too many of. And that's why we were setting up Medicaid funding for abortion. That's a very hideous, dark view. And, and contrary to all the encomiums about RBG at her death, about how inspirational she is, that is not inspirational. Yeah. Wow, that's so much to think about, Paul. Um, yeah, it's she's RBG uh, is was so radical, and the fact that there is the potential for her being replaced by a conservative just has the uh, the world in an uproar. Well, and a good question would have been to um, to RBG, right? If if she was still alive, and it's it's funny. This article that I wrote for the American Spectator, um, I actually picked this up from a piece I wrote a couple years ago during the Kavanaugh hearings, when I thought it could have been Amy Coney Barrett, and and I noted then that if she gets on the court, should President Trump nominate her, um, it'd be interesting to have her sit down a, across from Ruth Bader Ginsburg and have a talk, mm -hmm. be, right? Because uh, um, you know, if, if, of course, Amy Coney Bear would never do this because, you know, she's she's too kind and charitable. But, you know, you love to see her and her seven children, the one with Down syndrome, two of them from Haiti. And and, and if you say, OK, when you're talking about populations, we don't want to have too many of. Are you talking about any of my seven kids here? <laughs> right. What do you what, right. do, what do you yeah. what do you what do you mean by that? Mm hmm. And, and you know, this is the stuff that people on the left get away with. And I, I also, in this article, Amy versus the anti-birthers, I, I get into, I, I quote, Ron Weddington, who was the abortion attorney in the Roe decision, Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. And I quote a letter that he wrote to Bill Clinton. And, and he said there, you know, you as president, you can start immediately to eliminate the barely educated the unhealthy and poor segment of our country. He said the problem is that their numbers are not only replaced, but increased by the birth of millions of babies to people who can't afford to have babies. And then he says this. This is how, the, how this affects their personal lives, Bill. I was co-counsel in Roe v. Wade, and I have sired zero children and one fetus, the abortion of which was recently recounted by my ex-wife in her book. I had a vasectomy in 1969, and I've never had one moment of regret. So as far as he's concerned, he's doing heroic work, right? He's, his gift to the world is zero population growth from his marriage, mm -hmm. and actually it'd be minus one if you count the aborted baby. 
And, uh, you know, that is, um, and let me say here in this Christian show, that is a thoroughly unchristian and unchristlike view of humanity and certainly violates the, the edict, be fruitful and multiply and fill the ends of the earth. All right. This, this is just the opposite of that. Yeah. Will uh, Amy get attacked for her religion, you think, in the hearings? It's, it's, it's a good question. Now, I, I would have said a few weeks ago, yes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if, if Donald Trump wanted to make a really kind of Machiavellian political move, um, it, it's really smart, right? Especially as, as a bid for the Catholic vote, which the Catholic vote, vote voted for Donald Trump 52 to 45 mm-hmm. in 2016, and um, which is remarkable because the, the Catholic vote is very – uh, Catholic means universal, right? Catholicity, universal. And it's a very universal demographic. So, you know, the Catholic vote includes people um, who go to Mass every week, some who go to Mass every day, some who don't go to Mass at all, right? Some who go only on Easter or some who go only on Christmas, others who, who consider themselves Catholics but aren't really practicing. So it usually mirrors the overall vote. Mm-hmm. If the, you know, the, so really, the vote in 2016, Catholic vote, should have been 48 to 46 for Hillary. But the Catholic vote overall was so put off by Hillary and abortion and all that stuff, um, the assaults on religious freedom, religious liberty, Little Sisters of the Poor case, and so forth, that it went for Trump 52 to 45. Mm-hmm. And and white Catholics, I think it was like almost 65, 35 Catholics who attend mass weekly or more, I think it was I think it was like 65:35 as well. So if um if Trump wanted to kind of uh, uh energize the Catholic vote in 2020, this could do it, picking Barrett. And I think because of that, Bill, the I I think Biden and and, and Kamala Harris who's on the judiciary committee, I think they're going to be on their best behavior. <laughs> They probably told her, um, you know, hey, uh, uh, you know, Senator Harris, that really stupid comment you made a couple years ago about the other judge, John Boyster, when you asked him about belonging in a, quote, all-male society called the Knights of Columbus, and did you know that they were anti-choice and anti-same-sex marriage? No stupid comments like that to Amy Coney Barrett. Mm-hmm. None. <laughs> no Diane Feinstein uh judge the dogma rings loudly within you right, right? yeah no no comments like that. Be a good girl, behave yourself we We could even wire up your mouth to make you smile the whole time right if, if need be <laughs> yeah. don't say anything negative about her faith. don't do it so uh, I don't know i they they they're probably going to be very careful because. Because the election might uh, might hold their impulses in check. Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Kengar is my guest. We'll take a little break and be right back. Back to the show. Dr. Paul Kengor is my guest, professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And he's written a number of books. You should go to Amazon and check one out or two or three. Uh, he writes beautifully. So, Paul, I got this uh, text message that maybe I'll process with you a little bit just because of the amount of polarization and anger and everything else that's going on in the world right now. 
But uh, and uh, he, the person did not leave their name, so you never. I'm kind of against reading anonymous things, but this kind of ties into what we're talking about. You know, the question is, how do you justify evangelical Christians voting for someone who doesn't allow the killing of uh, unborn babies, but can't agree that people, working citizens, can be killed for only the color of their skin and say, well, it's a social issue. The Bible says, be your brother's keeper. However, it seems like a lot of older whites don't seem to understand that or choose to ignore it. Yeah. Um, people being killed for the color of their skin mm-hmm. in, 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 in America currently? Um, what is that President Trump, did the, did the writer say, advocates that? Uh well, yeah, he says that there's there's people being killed for the color of their skin. So, in other words, uh, what I should be doing, apparently, to this, well, he said that your your show has become a gospelized a way to push the Trump agenda to your audience. Oh well, well, let me let me just step in right there. First of all, I didn't vote for Donald Trump <laughs> in, in, in 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 2016. Um, let, let me let me say this to the person uh, sending that. Um, it, it, it's it's unfortunate. I I could see this developing already. Um, the the Biden Harris ticket because of things like court picks, um, packing the court. Um, at least, at least suggesting that they that they would pack the court or refusing to answer that question. Joe Biden reversing himself on the Hyde Amendment. Um, Joe Biden uh, is Catholic. I'm Catholic as well. Uh, Joe Biden was actually not quite as terrible on abortion as all those other Democratic candidates a, a year or two ago. He uh, Biden reversed himself on supporting the Hyde Amendment, which he had supported for 40 years, which would have which would have banned forcing people to pay for other people's abortions. He reversed himself on that. The, you know, the, this this abortion extremism by the Democratic Party ticket, unfortunately, pushes a lot of pro-life Catholics and pro-life evangelicals into feeling like, like they have no other option but to vote for Donald Trump in order to vote against people like like Biden and Hillary Clinton. And that's a shame. I've been telling Democrat friends for a long time, especially pro-life Democrat friends, put stop your party's radical drift on 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 these issues because because if you ever want to win an election if 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 they if they could have run somebody in 2016 who would have been at least fairly moderate on abortion like my former democratic governor of Pennsylvania Bob Casey in the early 1990s they would have beat Donald Trump but but they they've gone so extreme on on these issues that they've left a lot of pro-lifers feeling like they have no alternative. Most of the most of the people that I know who voted for John, uh, Donald Trump in 2016 did it very reluctantly because they feel they had no other choice. And Bill, I'm seeing the same thing again in 2020. I, I, somebody said to me today, "I don't want to vote for the guy in in 2020, but I feel like Biden and Harris are leaving me no other choice." Mm-hmm. And and so that, that's that's really a shame. That's a severe polarization. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's a quote from June 16th, 1952, uh, by President Eisenhower. Any kind of communistic, subversive, or pinkish influence must be uprooted from the responsible places in our government. And there was a, a talk about the agenda to eliminate prayer, eliminate laws governing obscenity, um, discredit the American culture, discredit the family as an institution, 
um, present homosexuality promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy. This is 1952 and the infiltration of the communistic movement. Yeah, and, and some of that is from Eisenhower, right? Yes. And, yeah, yeah, and, and Eisenhower was considered you know, a, a very moderate Republican. In fact, Eisenhower actually didn't like Joe McCarthy and 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 stood and stood up to McCarthy. I think McCarthy died in '53, I believe. So um, yeah, or no, '57. So he was. Um, yeah, that for you know, Eisenhower saw a lot of this coming. He's the man who put uh, um, uh, uh, under God in the in the in the Pledge of Allegiance. I didn't know and that. yeah, yeah, and he was. I mean, by by today's standards, I guess somebody who would have been a moderate Republican and very much kind of conventional American in the 1950s today would be seen as a radical right-wing monster <laughs> if he made <laughs> statements like that. Mm-hmm. But part of the other um, Marxist agenda, get control of teachers' associations, put a party line in textbooks, control student newspapers, and infiltrate the press. Break down cultural standards of morality by promoting porn- uh, pornography and obscenity in books, motion pictures, well, and, and TV. Yeah, and that doesn't come out of uh, out of just anywhere. In fact, um, in in my latest book, The Devil and Karl Marx, I know we talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, I have the longest part of the book is on the infiltration of churches. Mm. Uh, that that's that's part four of the book, and I, I spend a lot of time on on that issue. And the Bella Dodd, who was who who organized the Communist Party with the teachers unions in the state of New York in the 1930s and 1940s, she also talked about her mission of quote placing over 1,000 communist men quote unquote in seminaries. So so the, there actually were there actually was there actually were efforts to to do that kind of thing. I know that sounds crazy. I, I know it does, but but you know, the, the Communist Party in those days was a very conspiratorial, literally, organization, and actually sought to do that kind of stuff. Mm. So why is there uh, why is there an interest in in communism and socialism? Why is that having kind of a resurgence of interest? Well, it's a shame, and now that, that that's something too that when I was in college, I graduated college in, in, in 1990. I was the the editor for my student newspaper in 1989. I remember writing newspaper editorials on how, isn't this great, the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's the end of the Cold War. And you know, we, you know, we thought the arguments against communism were over. We could go on and focus on something else. But here we are 30 years later, and you now have in poll after poll, done by Gallup, among others, you have a majority of young people saying that they prefer socialism over capitalism. And and in one recent poll, about about a third of millennials um, actually favored the abolition of private property, hmm. as as they put it. And which which yeah, I don't think they really actually believe that, Bill, of all things. But <laughs> but but that's but that's what they say. And and here again, spe- speaking of the parties, we we had in the Democratic Party in 2016 and 2020, Bernie Sanders, a lifetime socialist. Who who finished twice in the Democratic Party primary in 2016 and 2020? By the way, in 2016, he received 13 million votes in the Democratic primary. Um, Hillary got 17 million, so he got over 40 percent of wow. all Democratic primary votes, and Donald Trump got 14 million in the Republican primary. So Bernie got almost as, as many votes as Trump did. 
and in 1980 and 84, Bernie's party was the Socialist Workers' Party, the Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party. He actually served as a formal presidential elector to the Socialist Workers' Party in 1980 and 1984. As James Carville, the Clinton advisor, notes, that Bernie was never a Democrat until he ran in 2016. He was actually an independent in the Senate from Vermont. So this shows how polarized the parties are. And here again, for the for the person who sent sent in that message, it's really sad. Uh, you know, I call this the great dumpster dumpster fire election of 2016. Ben Sass did as well. I think I'd probably have to, have to say the same of 2020. But there are so many people who are voting for Trump simply because they feel that. Um, they fear even more what could happen from the left, mm-hmm. and they feel that they have no other choice. And 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 a lot of them too. I'm seeing this because I I talk to them every day. They're saying, um, yeah, I approve, I disapprove of a lot of what Trump did, but you know we haven't seen Armageddon. We've been through four years, and they now feel actually more confident about him falling through on promises like making court picks and um, protecting their religious liberty in a way that they didn't in 2016. Mm. So I'm trying to say this stuff objectively with, without any, uh, any dog in this fight. I'm just trying to tell, tell people, if you want to know why this is happening and that's happening, well, it's, it's, it's for those reasons also, too. A lot of the people are going to vote for Donald Trump. Um, look, I don't know what person wouldn't condemn the, the beating to death of George Floyd. Right. I mean, that was just awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and But a lot of the people that are voting for Trump are really scandalized by the riots and what has happened in the streets over the last few months. Yeah. So a lot of them are voting for him for that reason, too. Well, have a wonderful weekend with your family and your many children. Okay. All Thank right. you, Bill. Thanks. Dr. Paul Kengar has been my guest, professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. You can head over to Amazon.com, check out his library of books. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.